morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life, all growing different types of plants. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio Station site. If you have any questions about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page, and maybe we can answer the question on the air. This morning, we are going to be talking garden photography with one of the country's best photographers, garden photographers, Saxon Holt. Good morning, Saxon. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, your photographs grace the, grace the covers of books and magazines, and you've been doing this for a couple of decades. So did you come into garden photography from an arts background um, and being a professional photographer that turned to gardens and flowers, or were the gardens and flowers the first bit and you learned how to ph- photograph them? Oh, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I come through it both ways. I... I was always a gardener um, growing up. My parents both were gardeners, and I learned to garden through them. Um, and then when I went to become professional, I, I loved photography, and I apprenticed as a studio photographer in San Francisco for a number of years and, and learned the craft of commercial photography, um, while at the same time I was still gardening and, and doing a little bit of outdoor adventuring with, with uh, native plants. And I suddenly got tired of commercial photography. I didn't like the being indoors. And I looked, had a friend who showed me a garden magazine. And I confess, I had never known there was a garden industry. I had always learned gardening just through my, my parents. And I'd gone to the local hardware store to buy seeds or, or to buy tools. But I didn't realize there was a whole industry around uh, gardening. And I realized I could do that. You know, I was trained as a photographer. And this is 30-some years ago in the the quality of photography in the garden world was not not nearly what it is today. So there was an opportunity for me, and uh, so I, I took the skills I had learned with commercial photography and, and joined that with my, my love of, of gardening, and, and here I am. Yeah, and I know when I first started working for newspapers, I was told to go out and get pictures, uh, and I came back with them without any people in them, and I was sort of admonished, you've got to have people in um, these ones for the newspaper, and preferably people who are smiling naturally, Um, and at least flowers don't get uh, self-conscious, but in what other ways is garden photography different from other lines of photography that you've been into, apart from you get out into the real world? Oh well, gosh, it's it's the, um, the the most important thing is really about the light. I I find it's really important to find soft light um, to to make the gardens and the plants look their best. A lot of uh, photographers always talk about how important the light is, but if you're a uh, a photographer who specializes in landscapes such as oceans or mountains or something, sometimes hard light can be beneficial to you and you, you want really bright highlights and, and such but with garden photography i learned pretty quickly one really needs soft light um, which means either working very early in the day or very light late in the day or fortunately for me when i first started i'm in california in san francisco and there is uh fog frequently and so the fog allows for very soft light so i was able to you know, learn my craft that way and so by soft light, it would be kind of, um, I guess you, you said fog, foggy type conditions, um, that ra- rather than um, natural sun, sunlight in the heat of the day. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, um, I've learned, actually, it, it's interesting, I, I I've forever have talked to my students and my, you know, people who would ask that soft light meant, you know, the fog or overcast, high overcast, not, not, not the deep, dark fog, or, of course, not rainy days, but, but high clouds create a soft light. Um, however, over the years, I've learned that uh, as a California photographer, I often get requests from publishers who think the, who, who want to see sun, sunshine and bright light into the, uh, into the photograph. So I've learned there's still a possibility of getting soft light but still having the sun in it. If you do that really early in the day or really late in the day and you can have uh, streaks of light come into the garden, um, not to dominate the picture, but still to just to have enough uh, light in it to, to brighten it, that the photographs are really evocative that way. And it's, it doesn't look like it's an overcast day, um, but, it, but it, it's, it's for, for easy success. If you're learning photography, garden photography, I, I would not even attempt to take a picture in the middle of a hot day. You're just going to be frustrated and it, the results are just not going to be attractive. Yeah, so, so stick to the sun, sunsets and the sunrises. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I know the, the digital wave has probably hit photography in a more significant way than in any other art-based profession. Um, so what hurdles did the advent of digital photography have to cross to get to where it is today? I, I remember in some of the early meetings I, I was at, you know, people really didn't trust the digital imagery um, and how it worked. Well, it's, 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 it's changed all photography, you know, and, and I, I think it's changed it much for the better um, in far as garden photography. Um, I used to, because, I, I say that because garden photography is, is dependent on color. I mean, sure, there are newspapers they only use black and white, but, but even the newspapers now are finding ways to have color photography, and certainly most of my market is the books and magazines that require you know, absolutely perfect color photography, and that's really hard with gardening. Um, it is not so much today as it used to be, but photographing in soft light often means a varied color of light. Sometimes the light can be very bluish if you're working in a, in a shade area. It can be very greenish. If you're working in under in the woods, it can be yellowish. If you're working um, in in sunset, and so the the, the type of uh, the quality of the light would very much affect the the quality of the photograph. And it used to be that the publishers depended upon their graphic designers and their production crew to know what a garden should look like, quote unquote. And they, they of course they wouldn't. They wouldn't know how green a green was supposed to be or how yellow a yellow was supposed to be and it was difficult to get really really good quality color photography reproduced in 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 books and magazines the the most high-end ones the coffee table books and they were able to achieve that with the effort of their art department but but a lot of the lower market publications and magazines had sporadic uh, uh, reproduction of color and now with, with the digital the the, the photographer has the capacity and, and actually the expectation, as I've learned from many publishers, to, to submit photos that are completely corrected for color. Um, it's, it, it did, I confess it spoiled me uh, years ago working with some of the better publishers and knowing their art department would correct the photographs. So if it was too blue or too yellowish or too green, they would correct it so it would look good in context with all the other photos. Now with the digital age, uh, and also cut back with some of the publishers, there's not so much corrections done at that end. The photographers are expected to do all the corrections, but 
but I actually I find it liberating because it really is fun to have the the power to to create the photograph exactly the way you as a photographer saw it and um and that's that's just really a, a power that I, I enjoy having. Yeah, um, and I know the days of a camera being needed for a holiday has gone, um, and cell phones now are almost as as um, they're almost as powerful, I guess, as uh, professional um, cameras were a decade or so ago. Um, but professionals still do use um, what I would call real cameras rather than cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what is the quality difference between a good cell phone image, say an iPhone? five or six or whatever the heck they're up to now, um, and one taken by um, a, shall we say, a moderately priced um, professional camera. Well, it's, it's, the lines continue to be blurred, as, and as is the whole definition of journalism. I mean, with journalism now, we see a lot online, you know, with, with the various social media, that, and journalism is conducted sometimes online with these instant cameras. Um, so that's, that's a, a separate question. Um, but but certainly the the cameras are much better. You know, as you say, the, the iPhone folks have revolutionized the quality of the results. I, I even know of, of several professional photographers who have used iPhone photos to submit to publishers. The the quality really is there. Uh, the in far as the digital information, it, it still needs to be manipulated somewhat with um, you know a, a post production tool such as Photoshop to make it really look, um, to reproduce really well in, in, in a print media. But it's, it's possible to, to use the iPhones for that. I, I, I find it limiting myself. I certainly you know, use my phone for, for photographs and snapshots and, and things like Instagram and, and such. But, but the professional camera um, is, has a much broader range of, of light that it will accept for the area between bright highlights and dark shadows and it also allows you to be more contemplative I, I think that to me is the biggest uh issue about using a a, a a professional camera i always advise my students to use a tripod um both for technical you know stability but also for the the, the composition to to know exactly what you're seeing in the camera and to, and to think about it and don't just you know it's too easy with a with a phone, with a camera phone, to, to just grab a photograph and not not think about it. Um, so I, I really uh, find the, the professional cameras not just give you a better quality and a, and a higher range of, of lens choices, which is which is another matter. The, the, the lenses you have with a professional camera um, allow you to the optic to do different things with your composition. The 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 camera phones don't have that. They really are you know amazing as far as what they can do, but they don't offer nearly the flexibility that, that, I, that I would want. And, and, of course, you know, when you get to the post-production of these things, it's a lot easier if you've got um, a decent a decent cam- camera. Um, but let's go back, let's talk a little about um, getting a good image um, as far as um, the content as an overview. We're going to talk more about it in the next couple of segments. But what would be, apart from the light, what would be the key things that you look for when you're looking at um, to get a, an image of a garden or a flower? Well, the, I have to joke about it. The first thing is to find a good subject, you know, to go into a, to find a good garden to photograph or, or a very healthy looking flower as your subject to start with, it's really hard. People sometimes think, oh, you can use Photoshop and you can, you know, create anything or correct anything. But it's, 
it's the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. So, so the first trick, of course, is finding a a good subject, a, a a quality subject, and then and then I I think that after that the the very first thing is always to think of your camera as a canvas, and when you look through the viewfinder, you have the four edges of your viewfinder. It's like the four edges of a canvas, and so you want to make a composition that fills up that canvas, that fills up that frame. You, it's, it's, it's to be very conscious of that and not simply to see an attractive flower or an interesting border or, or something that's catching your eye and just you know, throwing your camera at it. It's, it's composing within the four, you know, fr- the four walls, the, the frame of your camera. That, that's really a useful tool to compose with. Yeah, um, and I, I guess we, we have to go for our first commercial break here, Saxon. Um, but everyone will be talking more about garden photography with Saxon Holt on the Master Gardener Hour. We will be back in just a moment. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on archives at americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers. And this morning we are talking with Saxon Holt, a great garden photographer. And we talked a little about different ways to take um, photographs. So we're going to talk a little more about uh, how to design, I guess, um, or, or get that good image um and and my husband obviously had um one of the old-fashioned photographers um and he um always used to have this little light meter thing um and so you went under the shade of a tree to to take one you went into the sun to take another um and then, then you kind of did some manipulation of those numbers and then you were able to set something and take a picture um it's got a lot lot simpler um, now, but uh, do we still have to do some of those adjustments um, if we've got maybe um, it's an early morning, but there there are shadows in there too? Well, yes, you do. It it, it goes to really understanding how the camera meter works. The um, it it looks 
it, it's an average of what it sees. So when when the camera is pointed at something, it averages the the high area, the light areas, and the dark areas, and creates an, an average that that it thinks is what you're photographing. In photography terms, that's called a 18% gray. It's an average gray. Um, and so today, most cameras, you don't have to think about it. Once you turn your meter, your camera on, most cameras, especially for amateurs, have a, an automatic setting or a, a program setting that, that, that allows the camera to decide what it's looking at. Um, but for professionals, when you, when you come across a situation that's unusual, uh, and the classic example would be uh, a backlight with, with a, a bright sky. Um, the camera meter, when it looks at a bright sky, it thinks it's gray. It thinks it's looking at something at 18% gray, a photographer's gray. It, that's how the meter works. It assumes everything is gray. Um, but if it's not gray, and then you, the photographer, have to make an, an adjustment uh, to tell the camera that, no, what I'm looking at is not a neutral gray. It's, in fact, very bright. So you would then use your meter to overexpose the the to technically overexpose according to what the meter says, so that the the photograph comes out bright and light. And the, the same is re, in the reverse. If you were photographing a uh, a very dark subject, I learned this lesson with uh, some very dark tulips. I think Negrita is a very very dark purple. Um, if you look at it with a camera meter, and it thinks it's a neutral gray it will take that very dark color and lighten it up so much that it's not accurate. Uh, that's when you have to know that the meter is, uh, is thinking differently than what you as the photographer are doing. In that case, you have to make the picture darker than the camera says so the subject comes out the way you want it to be. And, and certainly with a, a, an SLR camera, um, you can override some of those settings um but i with my my cell phone um i've noticed it's got a little triangle in the corner and uh, which has got kind of blue red yellow i think it is and if you press that it shows you i think it's 15 different choices of what you want the, the camera to come out what the picture to come out like kind of uh, some have got ready tinges some have got bluey tinges and oh. things like that what exactly is going on and what are those choices it's giving me what 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 am i looking at there well that's exactly it's it's giving you it's showing you visually what your choices are if you if for instance if um in a in a, in a dslr camera like i would use and you see all the various control settings, the aperture settings from, you know, maybe 2.8 to, to, to 22 or 32. That range is what you you are seeing with these, those little triangles. They they are automatically looking at the various apertures. The aperture is how wide the lens is or closed. So depending the, the wider the lens, of course, the more light it's letting in. So the the, the beauty of the digital cameras and I, I don't know the the, the, the specific function of, of your your camera but it sounds like because it's digital it can assess you know, sort of on the fly all the various choices you could use once you just once you decide just like a uh, my camera I would decide which f-stop to put it on and maybe preview it and change it if I didn't like it uh, what your cell phone seems to be showing you is all the choices right in front of you and you can you just you know, hit whatever triangle you want, and you can expose it to be as light or as or as dark and rich as you want. Um, but this, um, if we, it's easy enough 
usually to take a, a decent image of a pretty flower head, like a calendula or something like that in bloom. It's not so easy to get a good image of a garden as a whole. Um, so what steps do you take to compose, um, besides it being within the four walls of the, of the canvas, to actually get that um, startling image of a whole garden? Yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I, and you're sort of setting me up, Kate, with my, um, my, my second book on garden photography. is called Think Like a Camera. And in that, I, 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 I assume that the student, the, the photographer, wants to use all four frames, all four edges of the camera. And then there are various tricks and techniques that you use for composition and, and things like focal points or leading lines or, or the point of view. All of these are, are elements that you would use. You take the, the focal point, for instance. If every photograph should have a focal point, and not, I don't mean by focus point, where it's the sharpest in focus. Now, often the focal point and the focus point are indeed the same, but the, the focal point of the photograph is the, its, its purpose. What do you want your viewer to see? You know, and, and so then once you decide what the focal point is, you can use various tricks of composition to put that focal point into a position within the frame that is pleasing, that will draw the eye to it, that will complement the other shapes, the other elements of the photograph. Um, but I, I think creating that pleasing composition is, is first, you know, having a focal point, and that actually goes to the, to the point, larger point of having a story to tell. When you, when you look at a, a garden, and you sometimes, especially the, the marvelous big garden sometimes we see on tour, we are overwhelmed with, with the beauty, and we, we just don't know where to start. Um, and that's when you have to decide, as a photographer, where to start and what your focal point will be. Your focal point can be, you know, a, a, a plant or a shrub. It can be an urn. It can be a pathway. It can be any number of things. But, but you have to decide what your focal point is going to be and then compose the rest of the image around that. And, and so you'd move around um, until you saw the focal point in the right light, um, or is it a matter of just fuzzing out the background and, and making one thing stick out? No, it, it's, it's a combination of things. That, that's sort of the art in the, in the, uh, of garden photography, is learning how to juggle all of those various elements. Um, the, the first, is, as we mentioned in the last segment, we, you know, bad light is, is you know, you can't get a good picture in bad light. So I think if you if you're in a garden and the light's really bad, and and you see a good focal point and you see a, see something you want to take a picture of, the camera is not likely to to do it any justice. It's not going to you know make it look nearly as good as your own eye. So, uh, but assuming you you have good light and you have a a story to tell, a, a focal point that you you want to feature you you a plant or a an object a, a wall or something that you want to be your your focal point indeed yes you you do need to walk around it and and see how that focal point uh fits in with all the other elements that may be in the garden you may not even notice you know a, a trash can in the distance you might not notice um dead branches or something until you start thinking about all the elements that go in around your focal point um I like to use there's another lesson in my workshop called shapes and uh, shapes and balance, where you you look at the various shapes beyond your focal point. It could be the 
you know, a, a, a conifer in the background. It could be a mass of, of bright red tulips. It could be anything that has its own shape. Um, that that is a a background for you. So when you find a focal point, that's just another element to include in the composition. And and so so you're looking to maybe um, mimic um, the the shape and things like that, say of a Japanese maple in the background as well. So you're kind of um, to emphasize it, um, or, or would it be a contrasting type of element? Well, that's a good point. It really depends on on every every situation is a bit different. Sometimes you do want to contrast it, and sometimes you want to complement it. It really depends on on the shape. A a Japanese uh, maple. Um, Depending on the season, you know, this time of year, they're all bare and bare branches, so it can be very busy in the background. And if you saw something else, I mean, this time of year, one might, you know, if you can venture out in the weather and photograph uh, uh, dormant seasons, and you were to find a, a series of, of interesting branches, uh, bark color, for instance, and, and, but the background was a Japanese maple with its uh, very complex pattern of branches, it might be very confusing um, to your subject if you found maybe a tree in front of it was a uh, had interesting bark and behind it was this very dizzy looking um, maple. It could, could not work at all. On the other hand, if if you as a photographer want something to be dizzy, if you, if you like the pattern of the branches beyond it, then maybe it looks wonderful to have another uh, bare branch in front of that. It's it's it really depends upon how you want to do it. Um, sometimes you can decide, even if you have a, a very busy pattern behind it, like like a, a Japanese maple in the in the winter, you can use a, a a soft focus so that that becomes just a blur in the background. You don't really see all the sharp detail of the branches. You just have a a, a texture almost in the background. It's it, it's really the fun of, of garden photography that you have so many possibilities and um and that that's it's every situation is going to be different and and we still use that um i know a lot of things in in art work on um a third basis um so should we have kind of a one third or two thirds be the focal point and one third be the also ran other stuff yeah no that's a, that's a classic uh art uh comp- art theory of the, the, the rule of thirds where you you look at a uh, a, a frame, and, I, and I'm thinking here of, of rectangles. The square is a little bit of a different challenge, but but any uh, rectangular shape, like all camera viewfinders, if you think about it in thirds, the upper third, the left third, the lower thirds, there are just fairly standard um, concepts of art theory that make it make it very pleasing to compose in thirds. So that if you have a, for instance, a horizon. Of a distant row of a, of, of a shrub hedge or something, if you put that in the upper third as opposed to dead center, you'll have a much more pleasing composition. So, so I'm very conscious, especially with something like a focal point, which we were just speaking about. If I have a a focal point, perhaps a um, a lovely container or an urn or something set into a garden, I will very carefully compose my composition so that's in the in perhaps the, the lower left third. Um, so that it's a more pleasing composition. Yeah, um, but you know, we need to take another quick commercial break here. When we come back, we will be talking more with garden photography with Saxon Holt on the Master Gardener Hour. We will be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? 
Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You are back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking great garden photography tips with Saxon Holt, one of the better photographers in the country. Um, And we're going to continue talking about getting the scene right. We talked a little, Saxon, about um, how to get the third thing in with with containers and things like that, not putting everything bang smack in the middle, which I think is a, a standard thing to do. Uh, particularly when you're beginning, you you focus on the thing that's in the middle. Um, But you mentioned on one of your blogs or or on your site that great garden photographers should be gardeners too. Why why do you think um, a garden photographer should be a gardener as well? Well, I think it just goes to being understanding your subject. I think if you, um, I think all of us, all all the garden photographers I know, all take seriously their job of communication to others, so that you want people to have success. You want to see the beauty in gardens, of course. Um, but if you if you don't know what's going on in the garden, as as a gardener, it's hard to know what you're looking at. It it can be just a, a pretty picture. You know, you get infatuated by a bright color or something, and that's not really communicating anything beyond you know what I call eye candy. Uh, so I think you you really need to be a gardener um, to take a good garden photograph. And in fact. That's the uh, the name of my, my third book in the series. It's called Think Like a Gardener. And what I try to do with that is is have the students go out in the in the field, in, in the garden, and think about how they, as a gardener, would interpret what they're seeing. You know, are they looking at something and they really like to see the dark textures of, of conifers? Do they really like to see variegated foliage? Are they... Are they Love the way a landscape architect perhaps has designed pathways. You know, use your own understanding of a garden, and then that will make you take a better garden picture. 
And, you know, and I, I think um, gardens obviously are, are individual efforts, most of them. Um, how do we bring out maybe the individuality of gardens, particularly, I mean, I've been on garden tours where maybe it's, there's about three or four different shady gardens and there's only so many hostas I can <laughs> cope with. Um, so, so how do you try and bring out the individuality when you're, when you're in different gardens? Well, I don't think that's too hard to do if you have the time to study a garden. It, it is really tough when you're on a, a tour. And, and in, in any given season when you're on a tour, everything is going to be at its peak, be it the, you know, the peonies or the roses or whatever it may be. All the gardens are going to have some similarity, and it's hard to, to tell them apart um, unless you have a time to spend in them. Um, and then that getting acquainted with a garden is, is when you really are able to you know, capture its individuality. It's, every garden is indeed different. Um, every, uh, every situation is different, and there's a personality, I think, in gardens. I, when I'm asked to photograph a garden professionally, I, I always ask for a scouting visit ahead of time. Uh, sometimes I, I ask for a couple of days to do the work because the light changes and especially if it's a very big and complex garden, you it, it takes some time to understand how the various elements are designed, much less how they photograph. So it, it, it I think it's just a matter of understanding the garden. It, it, it's they're not all the same. And I, I think it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about thinking like a gardener. As you as the as the photographer with the camera, what is it you're seeing? You're not seeing all the peonies to be the same or all the roses being the same, you're seeing them uh, connected with other plants. Um, you're seeing different different elements of design that, that are capturing your imagination. And I think that's what uh, takes some time to, to appreciate and to, and to see. Uh, it's easier, of course, if you're talking with the gardener and the gardener says, oh, I've always loved you know, variegated plants or I I've, have this thing for heirloom vegetables or, or something, then you have an idea of what where the passions of a garden creator lie, and it makes it easier for you to, to, to figure out you know, how best to interpret the garden. Well, on the other hand, I'm, I'm the biggest flattery I can get from any garden owner after I photograph the garden is something to the effect, oh, I never saw the garden that way. And I, just, I, I love that, that the gardens can be presented as creative spaces and that you know, as a photographer you can interpret it to, to your own to your own eye. I think that's, that's, that's really the fun of being a garden photographer. Yeah. Um, and, and then how maybe um, if you're going out, maybe doing native plants um, on a hillside or something, something that's not in a garden, um, may, maybe you're, you're, you're on a nature walk or in a park or some, something that's not manicured, and maybe you're focusing on native plants. Can you use that same um, the theory of thinking like a gar gardener when you're looking at um, maybe plants in an understory, maybe native shrubs or something like that? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful question because I... <laughs> I've come almost full circle um, as, as a garden, as a landscape photographer. I certainly go out in nature and photograph the landscape. Uh, you know, I do various, I still have, besides my gardening clients, I still have some landscape clients. And when I first um, was out in, in, the, in the landscape taking pictures of, of plants, I've always been drawn to ecosystems and, and plants rather than the, the lakes and the mountains and such. But I, I've always enjoyed seeing the, the, the plants. And then at, but at one point early on, I would think of a plant and how it could be brought 
into the garden and how it might look in the garden. In recent years, I find when I go out into the wild, I find gardens. I, I find what I'm looking at is already a garden, that, that, that nature has created combinations of plants and trees and together that, that I'm seeing is already in a garden. I've come sort of full circle in how I look at, at the natural world. Um, and so I think that's to your point that when you're in the natural world, if you are a gardener already, you start to see things that you wouldn't see if you didn't understand how plants grew and how they, uh, how they companioned with each other. It's, it's certainly harder to take a, a I think, a, a nature photograph that has the same structure as a garden photograph, because in a garden you, you, you're given things like pathways and walls that give you structure and leading lines and, and, and elements to compose around. It's, it's much harder in the wild, to, I think, to create as strong a composition. Um, but, there's, but, but certainly, if, if say, as a, as a garden photographer, someone who, who enjoys plants, you, you, you definitely can, will start to see the, the natural world in a different way. Yeah, um, and I know that um, light obviously is important in in how a garden looks. Um, but how can we maybe um, up in the the northwest, for instance, those beautiful granitic mountains which are almost basaltic black, and we've got that as something like that as a backdrop to a garden or maybe a really dark green hedge. What's the best way to maybe get the true color of that without um, changing the color of the um, the, the flower that you're looking at? Well, that, it's, God, that's a good question. It depends on how close by your, your, your structure is. If you're talking about this, like a, a big granitic mountain that has a lot of bluish color in it, and you're, it's right near the garden where it could reflect light back into it, you're going to get a bluish cast to the light. But, but I, I wouldn't advise that... Um, because that would mean you're, you're shooting in, in strong light, in sunlight. And so the, in soft light, those strong colors aren't going to affect you so much, and, and I would argue you, would, you should incorporate them. If there is a dark uh, uh, rock or something in the background, use that as a dark shape, as, as part of your composition. Even, you know, sometimes I, I can imagine myself, if you see a dark shape, you see an opportunity to put a, a light-colored shape in front of it to know it would then stand out. So you, you, I would see that as an opportunity to, you know, to compose around that dark shape. Okay. Um, and I know that um, particularly large trees and things like that, there was a beautiful magnolia uh, when I was down in Atlanta. I mean, this thing was the size of a house, and it went out really wide. I took numerous pictures of that, but I couldn't get an appreciation on an image of the magnificent size of this tree. What is a way of getting, short of having the house in the background, which kind of showed some of it, and what's a good way of get, getting that, that size thing right? Trees are, I think, the hardest subject at all in, in garden photography because, because they're so big, and, and, and they're always up against the, the sky, and the sky is much lighter in color, and it can often create a flare. You know, you, you look up toward the sky... To, to get a tree, and you'll get a all the light areas of the sky will create too much light, and it will flare into the lens. So you don't get the the detail of a tree. Um, they're really hard to photograph. I'm trying to imagine myself seeing a, a big old magnolia and trying to get the whole thing. Um, I, the first thing I would do is try to find some vantage point far away 
to look back onto it um, and perhaps use a, a telephoto lens even to, to bring it back into scale because a, a wide angle, if you're under a tree or nearby a tree and you're trying to shoot the whole thing, you'll be using a wide angle lens. But then that wide lens will bring in a lot of extra elements that you don't want in the tree. So if there's any way to back to back away as far as you possibly can from the tree and use a longer lens to 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 fill up the frame, that's that's a, that's a much you know have much more success. It's it's really hard. Trees are really hard subjects. Yeah, and, and I, I know I never was. I never felt happy with uh, with the 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 results of that that one. Some say, well, so maybe you should have put a car near it or something to get it. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but yes, um, and obviously right now we're we're kind of in in snow, um, and I'm looking out and I, I can see a couple of branches of of trees. Um, so so you say don't go up and get the thing in focus. Sometimes it's better to go further away and then zoom in on that. That gives a different effect to when you're actually closer. By, by using a zoom uh, a longer lens oh oh absolutely there's um the 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 whole optics of of, of lenses um, it's, it's rather complicated without having to show we have probably a radio audience here but the 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 shapes that are in a uh, in any composition a telephoto lens will compress those shapes so it makes it easier to see them a wide angle lens expands the shapes oftentimes a wide-angle lens can be used very effectively to make a garden, make a small garden look larger. Um, but if you're talking about something like a tree, the, the wide-angle lens will will bring in uh, wide areas that don't have a lot of shape to them. Um, so that's why a telephoto lens, if you can back up and take that tree, it will make the tree its own shape. Um, and then you can compose hopefully compose the other shapes around it, be it the house or the tree or, or some other part of the garden. Oh, that, that's a great, great tip because, you know, I mean, to say I was never able to get that darn thing right. Uh, but I, 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 will, I will give that one a try. Um, but, you know, we need to take our final commercial break here. But come back, everyone, and listen to more about Saxon Holt and some of the things that he does with his garden photography. We will be right back. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about garden photography with Saxon Holt. Uh, and Saxon, um, you've got many images in magazines and books over the last 30 years, as well as a great blog. Um, but you teach um, photography as well. And now you've developed um, a set of e-books to, to help folks like me get better at photography. Um, tell me a little about those e-books and, and how they're structured. Oh, yeah, well, they... The, the e-books actually are a direct result of the workshops that I teach. I have a, um, a, a website called photobotanic.com, and on that site I have a member workshop where, I, where members subscribe and they can receive it, uh, lessons on a, on a, we call it a drip basis. But as a result of all those lessons, 
I've packaged the, the lessons into their own sets of books. And so the books can be bought independently on, on the website, or if you go through the, the course, you get the exact same information. But it's, a, it's just a way to package the information. I, I, I think students you know, enjoy the workshops, and they can't always go to the ones that I have uh, directly. I, I, here in California, I have a regular client, regular, you know, not client is the wrong word, students who, who come to workshops at the San Francisco Botanical Garden or various garden shows or, or lectures that I do uh, on the West Coast, but it's not, you know, it's, it's hard to travel and, and, and to take the show on the road, so to speak. So, so that's why I created the website. And, and so, the, so the, the, the workshops you do are actually in California. They're not online so that people can get critiques um, online. Well, no, that's a good point, actually. For, for online, for, for members, if you are a member of my photobotanic workshop and you use a subscription there and you're taking the course, you can, I will critique the photographs, but that's only for, for folks who are online subscribing to the course. If I'm doing a workshop in, in the flesh, so to speak, if I went to a botanic garden, for instance, and, and ran a class for, you know, 15 students, always part of that class is a critique. In fact, that's usually the most useful part for most students is to, is to have a subject Often we'll use one of the themes, as we talked about earlier today, where the focal points or something in a garden. We'll have a theme, and the students will work on that in the garden, wherever it may be, if it's a botanic garden, for instance. And then that will be the, the, the morning's work, and then the afternoon's work would be the critique, where we really look at each other's work and compare and contrast. And you know, I, I would suggest things, you know, cropping or, or, or post-production changes in exposure or something that, that really can bring out something that the, the student was liking to see. Those are always much more fun to, to have it online, a hands-on workshop. But, um, but I can't get around, you know, everywhere, and so I created the online ones. And, and yeah. a lot of it, 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 the whole idea of it is meant to be to studied as, as, as a single class, a single chapter of the book at a time. You, you know, each, each book has six different chapters and six different lessons, and, and the hope is that the students will take the book and use one lesson at a time and, and go out and learn about how to use focal points or, 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 or colors or horizon lines or whatever the, the, the chapter may be, that it's not meant to be read as a sit-down you know, whole book. It's meant to be read one chapter at a time and you then go out with your camera and take some more pictures and, and learn what you've, what, you've, what you've read about. And, and is it geared to people that have SLR-type cameras or, or would cell phone cameras uh, work just as well um, in, you, in your classes? Well, I think certainly when I, when I, when I do my, my actual workshops, I, I ask my students to bring a, a, like a DSLR camera and a tripod. I, I think a tripod is really important to, the, to getting the, really the best pictures, to really understand what it is you're seeing and to have some connection with your subject and to slow down a little bit and think about what you're doing. But, but, the, but the classic ideas of photography can be are certainly applicable to a cell phone. I mean, we, we talked earlier about using the, the, four, frame, the four edges of a, of a frame, of a camera frame, as your canvas to work with. Um, and within that, certainly a cell phone has four edges itself. And if you have a focal point and you're thinking about what you're doing, a cell phone can certainly take, uh, can get the benefit of these lessons because you, once you learn about, say, uh, to think like a gardener, well, that's, that's independent of your camera. You learn to think about what you're seeing uh, is independent of the camera. If you have a focal point or a leading line or, or a block of shapes, you can certainly do that with your, with your, with your cell phone. I just 
I, I think it's not as as easy to do. And I, I ask you know my students, photography students, to think of themselves as photographers to take it seriously enough to to want to take a good picture to 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 not. The problem with the cell phones oftentimes is, is people, it's disposable. They're thinking of a quick and instant picture, and, and you know, I, I use it myself that way. But, but as far as a serious photograph, I think you need to be serious about your photography. And so that's, that's my approach. And, and, of course, winter is a great time to, for most of us to be studying that type of thing. Um, <laughs> and and, and there, there are four e-books. What are the titles of the e-books, and can they be purchased individually, or do they come as a, a boxed set, so to speak? Well, there, actually, interesting. I have, there are four modules to the, to the Photobotanic Garden Photography Workshop. They, they say online there are four modules, and they all become four books. The first book is called Good Garden Photography, and by good, I mean it needs to be good, and it has to tell a story. It's not just a good technical picture. That's a good garden photography. The second book is called Think Like a Camera. The next one is Think Like a Gardener, and the fourth one in the series is The Camera and the Computer, which is more of a technical analysis of things. And each one of those books is an e-book. It's a, it's a PDF format. You can download it. You order it from my site and download it, and you, you, you punch a button, and you deliver to your computer. But they're also available as iBooks. Each, of the, each book has six lessons, and so we decided to create each lesson as, as a one little, very inexpensive $1.99 lesson um, from the eBooks. And those lessons live on, on iTunes or Google Play, so you have to go there, and they you don't really download them the same way you do as, an, as a PDF ebook, but it's it's sort of fun to have just one lesson at a time. And all these are, are on um, photobotanic.com, is that right? Yes. And and do you have a blog on there as well? I think I saw saw a blog with beautiful pictures on it. Of course. Well, it's part the 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 photobotanic.com is is built on a blog format. It's a WordPress. It's a very very sophisticated blog format and it has a membership feature so that the members get the more detailed articles that are behind their, their mo- most of the information is, is free there's, there's a subscription area for it for the workshop but most of the articles are free you have to join to get it um, and it's printed much like a blog at that point you see a very detailed stories that are interconnected I, I call it a living book so if you want to read about tripods or read about native plant gardens or read about you know trees or something you can you can use the various tags and organize your your explorations that way um so it really is all a blog uh if if folks don't want to become a member they're still on the if you go to the site and there's a a news section where it's it's i call it the blog where there's a almost every day there's some new tip or some new photograph that i talk about so it's much like a blog in that way but the but the best information so that the in-depth articles that will all end up becoming ebooks those are for members um, and so there's a free member category as well as a, a paid member for the workshop and and so your the workshops that that you do are at the botanic gar- garden uh, locally right um, and are they um, things that people can sign up for um, is it is it just a, a one day thing or is it a ser- series of sev- several weekends for instance no m- most of the time it's, it's a one class at a time we've been in discussions about having a class that runs for you know ten weeks or something and I haven't I haven't we haven't done that yet uh, right now all the all the lectures, all the workshops are one at a time, and they, they, they vary. They're 
they vary. I mean, I, I, I am the photography director of the San Francisco Botanical Garden, but at the moment we have no classes scheduled. The, um, the ones I'm doing, the, um, actually the most fun one I'm doing is one called the, uh, the Garden as Creative Source. I'm doing this two other master garden photographers, uh, David Perry and Alan Mandel, are joining me for a three-day uh, symposium called the Garden as Creative Source at, at Berkeley Botanic Garden. And that, that's one of my... There, there, fortunately, there are a number of botanic gardens in the area that, that have their own audience and members and such, so I'm able to do workshops around around them and go to you know Sacramento or Southern California on a, or even up to Portland and Seattle. On a, you know, once a year, anyway, I'm able to get up to these other places, and if there is interest from your re, um, listeners, you can go to the photobotanic.com site, and there's a workshop uh, section that talks about upcoming workshops and, and what some of my students have done in existing workshops and, and see what's, you know, what, what, what I'm doing. And, and most of them, um, they, they sign up um, at, at the site itself, or, or can they sign up through the website? Well, it's, most of the most all of the, the courses are run through the various sites. They collect the money and, and, and whatnot and the registration information. But I certainly have on my website have have them right now. For instance, there's there's I'm doing workshops at the San Francisco uh, Garden Show next month. I'm doing, as I said, the the uh, Berkeley Botanic Garden, the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden. I have you know a list of projects of workshops that are that I'm doing. And then when you go to my site, you would, you'd see the list. But then when you click, if you for more information, you would go to the the venue itself to to sign up, and 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 they collect the registration information, you know, from them. Okay. Um, and what about so, social media? Um, are you on Facebook and things like that as well? Yeah, oh, yes. I think all of us in the media and sort of have to be these days. I do it begrudgingly. I'm not. <laughs> um, I don't really enjoy it. As much as um, I find it a burden, to be honest with you, I, I, on a personal level, I have my personal Facebook account where I interact with friends in the industry and, and personal friends and family that I, you know, it's just fun. But as far as professionally, I have my Saxon Holt Photography, which is a fan page, as well as Photo Botanic, um, both uh, as Facebook. You know, you can go to Facebook slash Photo Botanic or Facebook slash Saxon Holt Photography, and that's where I have a lot of information about, you know, upcoming book projects or workshops or, or simply gardens I've seen. And, and um, it, it, I, I enjoy it to, to, to share the pictures, but it seems to be time-consuming just to, to schedule things and, and to get it all, you know, organized. And it's, it's quite honestly, <laughs> all my business advisors saying, you must do more of it. And I, oh, I just, oh uh, yes. <laughs> Everybody has to do pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, we Close to the the end of the show, Saxon. Um, but there there are four ebooks. That can they purchase them directly from your website, or do they have to go through iTunes for the ebooks? No, for the ebooks, they can only purchase through my site. That's the whole idea. Okay. That with it, when when uh, self publishing, if you create a, a product, it's better to sell it yourself. So, all and, and it do, and it's not available for Kindle. Is that right? It just comes on the computer. It's just a PDF through photobotanic.com. Okay. And, and part, actually, Kindle is not very suitable to my projects because they're so heavily illustrated. There's so many big pictures. It really is not suitable for Kindle okay. reasons anyway. Okay. And those can all be found on photobotanic.com. Thank you very much, Saxon. I mean, it's been a great, great talk. I really appreciate your time um, this morning. Um, and uh, everyone, thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday.
This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.